Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Robert Lynn Steiner, author of River Boots. Robert Lynn Steiner is the author of River Boots, a fish warden's tales of Pennsylvania fish and game law enforcement. At the beginning of the book, you reference a fictional character created by outdoor humor writer Patrick McManus named Sneed. Who is Sneed? Sneed was his uh, game warden, fish warden combination. Uh, he used it as a, a persona that just showed up in the backcountry whenever he least expected it. Uh, Sneed was the ultimate in uh, law enforcement for conservation. He would be behind the tree that uh, you least expect it all the time. And the more I read of it, the more I decided that uh, when I grew up and became a fish warden, I wanted to be Sneed. And uh, Sneed certainly uh, helped me make decisions in the field uh, constantly, how to, how to be crafty but in, inobtrusive, unobtrusive. How old were you when you decided you wanted to be a fish warden? I was probably nine or ten. Uh, my father took me to a sportsman's club meeting regularly, and a fellow stood up and spoke to us, and I believe his name was Bob Colt. He was a deputy game protector in Westmoreland County. And uh, he gave a little talk about what the game commission did and so on, and I became very enthused with that. I started reading a lot of Jim Cajelgard out of uh, Galton, Pennsylvania, who wrote outdoor books for boys. And uh, that got my enthusiasm going that much more. And then in sixth grade, we had to write a letter uh, concerning employment. And I wrote to the Somerset office of the Fish and Boat Commission. And John Buck was the uh, supervisor down there at that time. And he responded with a letter to me telling me what I had to be. And at that time, you pretty much had to have a military background, be 23, stand 5'8", to six foot six, and weigh between 165 and 265 pounds, uh, have good eyes and hearing. And the first thing I had to do was get that military out of the way. So I was in boot camp with the Coast Guard 13 days after high school, and the rest was history. They hired me right after that. Well, let's talk about your time in the Coast Guard. What, what did you do? Well, I had a kind—I of, went in as—if I'd have been any other service, they'd called me a grunt. Uh, you know, you start off at the bottom. My first assignment was in New York City. Uh, out of, actually out of Stanton Island, I was painting buoys and scraping them. And then I got, left there and I went to Alaska uh, to the Annette Airfield, which is out, uh, 17 miles east of Ketchikan. And up there, I scrubbed toilets for pilots and did all the other grunt work, cleaning the barracks and that sort of thing. And while I was there, I made rate. And I became, when I got E4, I was a yeoman. I got to run a typewriter. So I got shipped stateside, and I lived under the Walt Whitman Bridge like a troll in the uh, Coast Guard office at Gloucester. And then after a year of that, I was able to bid down, and I got another promotion. I got ID 5. I was running the administrative office 
for the group Atlantic City, which is a bunch of lighthouses off the coast of Atlantic City. And then, uh, you know, despite wonderful offers of promotion and possibly going to OCS and, uh, you know, becoming an officer, I'd already been told by the Fish Commission they would hire me, and that was my ultimate goal in life. So there, that's where I went. So when you left the Coast Guard, did you go immediately to work for the Fish Commission? Uh, actually, they tried to hire me while I was still in the Coast Guard to go to work in the hatchery system because I hadn't attained 23 yet. So uh, it, they could, I couldn't go to work then. Then they tried again in October. And I wasn't able to accept that uh, for financial reasons. The pay just wasn't good enough. I was doing better on unemployment at that time. Then things changed, and uh, I went to work for them in February. So it was like six and a half months after I got out of the Coast Guard. I was went to work in the hatchery system up in Erie at the Walnut Creek Station, which is long gone now. It's now the Fairview Hatchery. And then in the summers, I would work in the Muskie Sausage Program over at Union City, or I'd be down at Tynesta clipping fins on fish. And then uh, in the fall, all the wardens would come in and work undercover during the salmon run up in Erie. So uh, they would come into our lunchroom and they'd be sitting around and joking with us and stuff while we were working, we're supposed to be working. And we got to disliking the wardens as, when we worked in the hatchery. It was kind of a love-hate relationship. And uh, the boss one day said, you ought to take the test and see if you could be a warden. I think he was, by then I had a ponytail and was a little bit of a dissident. And I think he was kind of glad to get rid of me, but I passed the test. And uh, when I did my interview, a fellow by the name of Minner Jones, who had been a previous supervisor down in uh, Somerset, he was an older fellow, he was on the civil service interview. As I turned around and walked out, I had a ponytail, and he said, Mr. Steiner, would you consider getting that haircut if we give you this job? And I said, man, be a fool not to get a haircut for $4,800 advance. So there I was. Talk a little bit about the fish hatchery part of it. Why were, why were fish being raised at this point? Okay, we, we raised, uh, we would take the salmon coming into the creeks of Erie. We'd catch the brood fish using... Uh, nets, dip nets, 100-foot uh, nets, catch them, take them into the hatchery. We would take the eggs and the, the milled off the males, mix it, get the eggs set by putting them in cold water and let them set for a while. And then once they were hardened, we'd ship them down to Tynesta. They would hatch them out, and then when uh, they eventually got full-grown, up to 7, 8 inches, they'd bring them back up and turn them loose in the tributary streams. Uh, what, like I said, my job was playing with the adult fish, taking the eggs. I drove some of the fish trucks down. I'd drive the trucks back with the, uh, the fish in them. And when the fish were down there, if they were doing any biological things, I would uh, clip the fins or, you know, mark the fish so that they could tell which year class it was. And I did that for two and a half years, and then all of a sudden, uh, I find myself in the warden school. So talk a little bit about what wardens do. I mean, what, what types of uh, okay. responsibilities do they have? Well, primarily you're responsible for all the fish and boat laws in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, in 
we are separate from the Game Commission, though, and, and separate from DCNR with the parks and the forest, uh, but we have authority under each other's law. So it's, you get assigned to do fish and boat things, you don't get assigned to do game and park things. Uh, your patrols consist of uh, you know, making sure that people have the right size fish, the right time of year, they have a license, uh, they have all the boating safety equipment, they abide by all the rules of navigation. And uh, in, the, in what you call the off season, uh, you're uh, meeting fish trucks and stocking fish in the streams. You're doing pollution investigations with the, what's now the DEP. Uh, you just work, it's a year-round job. They do manage to keep you busy. They don't let you sit around. Well, you seem to, from the stories in the book, you seem to spend a lot of time hiding behind bushes and leaning up against trees watching people. Yeah, that's what Sneed taught me. Uh, that was Sneed's strong suit. It, it was being observant. Uh, I was always taught that rather than guess what somebody did wrong and try to talk them into confessing, you're better off just to watch what they did wrong and tell them what they did wrong. And we were equipped with uh, binoculars and a spotting scope as part of our equipment, and it certainly was beneficial to know what, uh, you know, what went on. When I walked up to you and said, I saw you fishing, I knew you had cast, baited the hook, uh, retrieved it, maybe caught a fish, put it back, whatever it was, but I had watched long enough that I could convince the courts that you had been fishing. You weren't just standing there looking at the fishing rod. So, yeah, observation was a lot of it. And a lot of the stories uh, have to do with observation. One, uh, one of my strong suits was always uh, arresting litter bugs. And there was a, a particular case on Bear Creek over by the Francis Walter Reservoir outside of Wilkes-Barre where uh, I had a couple deputies actually hiding behind. We had a, a beer party of 30 or 40 people going on on a waterfalls. And they, I had fellows in behind uh, just to back me up more or less. And I was sitting back in a vehicle for some distance watching with binoculars to see who threw the first can to go in and make a scene of uh, issuing a ticket so everybody got the word. And the fellow threw the bottle, and he threw it right to one of my deputies. My deputy caught it before it hit the ground, which was a pretty interesting case. I mean, there was no argument on his part at that point. Uh, I, think, I think one of the things in the book that I speak about is the field acknowledgement. We used that almost till the end of my career. And what that was was a little—it started as a little three-part uh, notepad that had particular things marked on it. And you'd give, you take the, the defendant's money and you'd give him one third of the notepad, you'd have a third, and a third would go to Harrisburg. And that's how you accounted for taking money off of people for doing things bad. Now, the fines were generally 10 to $25, but it was kind of a, it was sort of a lame system at that point. And uh, it eventually uh, advanced to where it was more or less like a citation, and the defendant had to sign away his rights and so on. But eventually, just as I was leaving, everything went to citations with the uh, attached court costs that come with citations. Now, in the book, you, one of the stories you tell is about uh, an outdoor writer who's uh, you attended his presentation, and he expressed uh, 
uh, his thoughts that wardens weren't at a particular place that he he regularly fished, and you tried to persuade him differently. How did you persuade him uh, that that you were observing? Okay, yeah, yeah that was. Uh, I won't I won't say the fellow's name, but he is a an outdoor writer, and he had some wonderful uh, photo books that he had done on. Uh, aquatic insects and such and he had given a talk at a Trout Unlimited meeting and I was sitting there in civilian clothes as a member of Trout Unlimited and he expressed the fact that he didn't think there was enough patrol on Little Sandy Creek up near Polk and uh, that was always one of my favorite places to patrol but I'd just never run into him and uh, one day I saw his vehicle when, when I left the meeting I watched to see which vehicle was his because I had spoken to him at the meeting and said, I'm sorry you felt that way. I thought I put a lot of time on that creek. And he assured me that I didn't. So I thought, well, someday maybe I'll get to prove it to him. And uh, one, one day I saw his car parked and I wasn't that busy. So I thought, I'll just go in and watch him fish for a while. And I went in and I leaned up against the bank, against a tree on top of a bank that was about six foot high and undercut. And he was pretty much only two or three feet in front of me fishing the other way. And I watched him catch eight rainbows and a brown or eight browns and a rainbow and put them all back. He was doing a superb job of casting. And finally, he hung a fly in the tree behind him right at my feet. And he come back and he was taking the fly out of the, the leaf that he uh, had hooked. And it wasn't more than three feet from my green boots. And all of a sudden, he focused on my green boots and about did a backflip into the water. But he didn't fall. And uh, I just said hello to him and thanked him for you know putting the fish back. And I could see his license, and I walked away. I think he got the word. Now, you, you mentioned some of your coworkers uh, uh, over the years in the book, uh, one of whom was Bob Nolf. Who was he? Bob Nolf was a game protector that was on the job in Luzerne County when I was first assigned there. And my, my supervisor met my wife and I the day we, I reported into the area in uh, 1976. And we met at a restaurant with him. And he introduced me to Bob Nolf. He said, Bob's a game protector here. He'll show you the ropes. And that's about, other than the nine weeks of fisheries training we got early on, that's about what you had for uh, training. And Bob was a really good fella. And I, I worked with him for the eight years I was there. And it, he, we lived about a, two miles apart. So if either of us wasn't busy, we'd check in with the other guy and say, what are you doing today? You need my help. And we had a real close bond. And we had some funny, funny times together and some pretty serious times. But one that always uh, comes up in my mind when I think of Bob is right behind his house was a, a doctor, and the doctor called that morning and said, Bob, we have a, a, had a skunk over here. I got it in the garbage can with the lid on it. Could you come over and take it somewhere and put that in the woods where it won't be in the suburban area? So Bob says to me, he said, the first thing in the morning, he said, you and I need to go pick up this skunk that Dr. So-and-so has and take it out to the game lands. So we did. We went over and lifted the garbage can gently up onto his deer rack and bungee corded it in place so it wasn't going anywhere. And we drove the 20 miles on the interstate out to the deer pit on the game lands. And Bob felt that he needed to put this skunk at the deer pit so it would know where to eat when it came out of there and wouldn't have to hunt any food anywhere else. And he, I backed away, and he gently 
tilted the garbage can down so that the skunk could walk out. And when the skunk did walk out, he walked out the back of the garbage can. There was a big hole there. The thing had to be riding a spread eagle the whole time to keep from falling out of the garbage can. And I just had this vision of going down the highway in front of somebody and the skunk dropping out of the garbage can and then that person, you know, calling a TV or a radio station and complaining about the game commission stalking skunks on the highway to get hit. But none of that actually happened, did we just put it at the the uh, deer pit and left it go you know, left it go to enjoy the rest of its life. Now what one of the things that, that you were involved in a lot was uh, stocking trout. Uh, was this intended to kind of rebuild the population of the trout? I think I think the stocking part of it is more is considered more of a recreational fishery. Uh, it's a put and take. Uh, it it raises it, it promotes the the whole trout fishing thing in Pennsylvania. Uh, I know in those days they were up three or four million trout they were stocking. I think it's been reduced lately. Uh, with going to a bigger size fish, the the whole thing, uh, while it may have originally been intended, I think the original charge in the original fish law, if I recall right, which I've read a few times when I used to own a copy of it, was to restore useful tribes of fishes. Uh, I don't know that that wording is there anymore. I think that has long since been removed. And it, it's, it's entirely a recreational fishery, uh, with the exception of maybe some fingerling stockings, which is a put, put grow and take fishery. Uh, but when the, when the white trucks roll in March, I think that's just to provide a recreation uh, for the sportsmen of Pennsylvania. So tell us what it's like on opening day of trout season. Uh, the word circus comes to mind, but it's a nice circus. It's a good circus. It's a, it's a celebration. It's a trout festival. Uh, you know, it, it's something that, it's like the first, first kickoff down here in Pittsburgh or the first baseball game. It's just a big to-do. And, uh, you know, half a million trout fishermen look forward to it. They can't wait, wait to have it happen. They've been out helping us stock when they had time. Uh, they got a favorite place they go. Some of them set up a camp. Uh, you know, they have a, a camaraderie thing with six or eight buddies going on or their family. Uh, you know, there's kids along. It, it's truly a, a wonderful thing. And I, I had it explained to me one day uh, by a grocery store owner up by we live in a little town, Cooperstown, and Jim had a store that you just walked into, you know, just a little backcountry grocery store. And a lady was standing ahead of me in the morning. Uh, I was waiting to buy something, a bottle of pop or something. And she was growling on, on the opening day to Jim about, you know, there's cars parked everywhere. There's nowhere for me to, uh, you know, I can't hardly get off the road and just going on and on about how much it displeasured her to have all the fishermen roaming around. And Jim said, looked at her and he said, well, that may be so, but my Boy Scouts have sold over $1,000 worth of hoagies this morning. And that pretty much, to me, said it all. You know, they were providing the carnival atmosphere uh, as much as the Fish Commission does with the way they op have the opening day. So as a fish warden going into 
this big day. Uh, are you looking for violations or are you issuing citations on a day like that? Uh, generally, you're encouraged to fly the flag, you know, ride around, be seen as many places as you can be seen. Uh, you know, let people see you, let them know you're out there, let them know you're doing your job, let them know that, you know, all is well with the Fish Commission, Fish and Boat Commission. And on the other hand, occasionally you do get involved in the law enforcement thing. Uh, the first day is not a day that most people go out to double up on limits. They, they hold that to later in the season. There's too many other eyes out there. They don't know who's who. And for the most part, they're pretty well behaved. Uh, littering has got to be less and less of a problem, I think, at least uh, in the areas where fishermen congregate, uh, the, the, the known streams, the ones that are talked about. But one opening day, it was raining, and this was in uh, Venango County. I had a tip from a deputy's wife that a girl she worked with said that opening morning on lower two mile run, there was always a group of guys that fished too early. And I said, well, that's not fair. They, she said, oh, they start an hour or two early. Well, I didn't, I had another place I wanted to check. I went there and nothing was going on and I still had plenty of time to go to this place before the opening hour. So about 6.30, quarter to 7, opening hour was 8, I rolled in, and I, I saw a group of guys right where she said they'd be. I didn't know if it was the right fellows or not, but I drove on up the road a couple hundred yards, parked, put on my rain suit because it was coming down in buckets, and I got across the railroad grade, which shielded me until I walked right up on these fellows. And I got up on top of the railroad abutment, which was long gone, the rails had been taken up, and I looked down, and it's like 10 till 7, and I got 14 people fishing, and there's fish flopping everywhere where they've caught fish, and there's, there's me. And so I just stood up, and I said, fellas, what time is it? And they said, they all looked at their watch. I said, you're an hour early. And I jumped up on a tree stump, which made me somewhere in the neighborhood of six foot eight or six foot 10. And I said, okay, everybody stand where you're at. I'm gonna collect your fishing licenses. I want all the buckets with fish in. I don't want any shenanigans. I'm gonna gather this all up and then we're gonna talk. So I walked around, took buckets, put fish stringers in it, get gathered license, put them in my pocket. And then I stood up on the same stump and I made a little speech and said, told them about the field receipt and how you could pay. And once you were paid and eight o'clock came, you'd be allowed to fish again. So I. I stood up there and I gave his speech and I said, now you can line up at the car and when I'm done, I want everybody to have the right amount of fish because it got to add up to what I have in the buckets or we're going to start over. And surprisingly, they all lined up. If it, you know, I expected them to scatter like a flock of quail and I'd, I'd get the slow guy. There was two fellows and a kid on the other side, a young fellow about 13. I said, you, th you three, grab your fish, get over here, and don't pull any shenanigans, and they waded across the stream to me. It was just, it was unbelievable cooperation. But then again, you know, fish and boat law is not the crime of the century. But anyhow, they came over, I got them up to the car, I wrote the first 10 or 12, and I ran out of paperwork. I told the other two fellows, I'll be back when I honk the horn, I want you to come up, it'll be an hour or so. But I'll give you a card that says you can fish starting at 8 o'clock. So I did that. I went and got more paperwork, come back, honked the horn. They came up and settled their cases. Everything added up perfect. 
And about a week later, I got notified from Harrisburg that one of the fellows was a repeat offender. Uh, he had done something the year before within his calendar year, so his fine was tripled. So I called him on the phone, and he sent more money, and I sent him a receipt. It was, a, it was an unbelievable first day. It was like, I don't know, scoring the first 14 points in the opening game or something. But uh, it was silly, but everybody was cooperative and nice, which most of the fishermen always were. They knew that what they were trying to get away with, they hadn't gotten away with, and, you know, that was my job. So all worked well. Uh, one of your other colleagues was Joe Copina. Who was he? Joe was a bigger-in-life uh, fish warden. He had been a deputy out of Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, and he lived in Mary D. Uh, that's all I knew about Joe's previous history. I believe he drove a, uh, a uke in a coal mine or something and worked as a deputy part-time just for fun. And he had quite a, an impressive record, and when the opportunity came to hire him, they hired Joe, and they gave him Forest County. If you know Forest County, there's 4,800 residents in it and twice as many camps, and Joe was bigger in life. Joe was six foot two, six foot three, and I think the most muscular man I ever saw when he was young, he was 280 pounds, he could have play, played for the Steelers here on the front line. Uh, I saw him just do some terrific feats of strength without even thinking about him, pushing vehicles and such that nobody else could move. But in his later years, he kind of slowed down and got bigger. But Joe was just, uh, he was comic relief. Uh, no matter what Joe got involved in, uh, it ended up funny. And my one of my favorite stories is a... Uh, uh, Tom Greenlee was a game commissioner. I think he was president of the game commission at that time, and he was from Tynester, Tynester area. And one day, Joe and I go in for lunch. I'm working with him. We're neighboring officers, so we got together for lunch at, the, at a restaurant in Tynester. And we're parked, Joe's parked with his old beat-up Jeep that he had uh, issued, and he's sitting just, just outside the restaurant with the Jeep, and we're inside, we've ordered, and a, a logger comes in, a fellow that works in the woods, and he said, Joe, your Jeep's on fire. And Joe said, no, he said, it's not on fire. He said, that's just steam coming. He said, I get that all the time out of that old Jeep. And we're sitting there, and another logger comes in a minute or two later, and he said, Joe, he said, your Jeep's burning. And he said, nah, he said, that's just, that's just uh, steam coming up. He said, we get, I get that all the time. And then Tom Greenlee walks in. He said, Joe, your Jeep's on fire. And Joe starts the same line. And, Joe, and Tom said, no, Joe. He said, your Jeep's on fire. I see the flame eating your radio. He said, you need to get out there. Well, he and the loggers go rushing out. And by then, there's the cockpit of the Jeep is filled with flame. And they're trying to put it out. They can't get the hood open. They can't reach in to get the hood. So one of the loggers takes a spud bar to the Jeep and breaks the hood open, and it just engulfs them, the, the Jeep with flame. And by then, I thought, all I'm going to do is get hurt standing here watching this. There's guys running around with spud bars, and they're spraying CO2. And I went in, and the soup was sitting there that we ordered, so I ate my soup. And Joe hadn't come back yet. So I thought, well, no sense letting him get his soup cold. So I ate his soup, and he came back in, and he was all excited and still worked up over this thing and didn't know how he was going to tell the boss and, you know, the, the whole thing that you go through when your car burns up. And 
the girl gave Joe the tab and he paid it and walked that. And he didn't realize, I think, till a day later that he bought me not only my soup, but his soup. So that, the joke was on Joe that time. And the jokes were often on Joe. Uh, he had Target written all over him. He was also in a, in a dog food commercial, and you guys had a little bit of fun with that. Uh, we did. Joe, uh, I believe uh, Dad's dog food was centered up in Meadville at the time, and I'm pretty certain that's the brand it was. But Joe had a team of uh, racing huskies that he, he raced, uh, snow, uh, sn yeah, snow sled uh, racing huskies. And something that they came down with they thought could have been possibly from the dog food. So they sent a vet over, as I understand this, they sent a vet over uh, to stay with Joe to help the, uh, the dogs through this illness. And Joe got to be friends with this vet, who in turn told the people in Meadville at the dog food uh, place what a character Joe was. So they, they suited them up with a big fur parka and put them on the back of the dog sled and uh, you know, Joe, Joe just had this big booming voice, you know, hey, 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 here's Joey. And he did this, this whole dog food commercial. Well, it ran its course, but Joe was really proud of having done it. And he did a great job. I wish he was sitting here. He, he would give you a lot more humor than I can. But uh, he, he sat there and one night, and we were sitting around, six or eight of us at a, a state conference, and we were having one of those beverages that they advertise around here, uh, what do they call it? Iron City, I guess it is. And uh, we were all sitting there at the table having a, a beer, and Joe got to talking about this, and he was telling the story about his dog food commercials to some of the officers from the other parts of the state. So when he walked away, our waitress come back, and one of the fellows, the young fellows, was talking to her, and she said, oh, I'm studying to be a, an actor at, uh, in Penn State. So they said, you want to make 10 quick dollars? And they told her if she would come back to the table, when Joe come back, recognize him, and say, aren't you Joe, the guy in the dog food commercial, that they would uh, give her $10. But when he said yes, you had to tell him, I really dislike that commercial. Okay. Well, she did all that. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, young lady, I'm going to go right upstairs. I'm going to get you a black and white picture. I'm going to autograph it for you, whether you like that commercial or not. And upstairs he went, and he came back, and he gave it to her. And we all howled because we had set her up to it. And it broke his—he was a big bull of a man, but he had a little China heart. And we broke his heart, and he went, went to sit with us for the next four nights. But he got over it. Joe was a good sport in the long run. Now, you also talk about ice fishermen, and uh, you say that they're, they're different from other types of fishermen. How so? Well, I, ice fishermen, by nature, are sedentary. They're, they're happy to go sit on a white bucket on the ice, bundled up, not move, not do anything, just keep the weather off of them and catch fish through a hole that's six or eight inches in the, the surface. They also got to be willing to walk on ice, and that, that separates them because not all ice is created equal. And as an officer, I found that out any number of times. Uh, one time, which was uh, really horrific on Oil Creek, but the time that I uh, am going to recount was on Justice Lake in Venango County, 
I just got in there. It was my first tr uh, trip out to Justice Lake to patrol on the ice, and I uh, checked a few fishermen on the side that I was sitting on, and then I walked across uh, the open across the big part of the lake to a fisherman down on the other corner. And when I got close to him, he motioned me to back up. And he'd meet me on the shoreline, which I did. And I said, what's the matter? He said, well, he said, we only got about an inch of ice here. He said, uh, he said, I was taking a chance fishing. He said, I didn't think the two of us stand together was a good idea. He said, and out there where you just walked across, he said, that was open water yesterday. Well, that certainly made me start to rethink my ice adventures, but probably not quick enough. You know, I've had some other episodes since then. Did you ever have a, uh, an experience where you fell in? Yes, one one in particular, I'm sure, uh, stands out, and it's it's sort of a a long-winded thing. But I was putting up uh, signs on Oil Creek. It was late December, I believe, the 22nd December. The Oil Creek had frozen solid behind the the ice dam. Uh, probably mid-November, it was an early freeze, and the ice had actually gotten to be six, eight, ten inches thick until we had a, a big thaw, heavy rain, and it flushed out, and it stacked on the shoreline, as ice will do. Uh, you know, the water was up six or eight feet, and as the water went out and receded, the ice ended up stacked in sheets. So I saw this as an opportunity. I believe the year was 1989. The uh, We had just... We, the Fish Commission and Trout Unlimited, just worked to put in a special regulation area which only allowed the use of lures and flies. And I wanted to get the posters up, and I thought, well, if I put them up at eye level, there's bound to be somebody that's going to feel they have to tear them all down. But now that the ice is or the water's receded, I can walk the edges of this creek on that ice and put them up and they'll be six feet higher than people can reach. And I thought that'll be a, or three feet higher. I thought that'll be a good, you know, a good way to get it posted. So I started out, I had to cross a railroad bridge. I started up the backside, which is pretty remote in Oil Creek State Park. And it's probably a mile and a quarter, mile and a half to the park office. And I'm going up nonchalantly putting up signs. I got, I just have a pair of hip boots and a wool shirt on and a, a staple gun and my bag of posters. And I'm going up along there, putting the signs up, tacking them on trees, and I come to where Rattlesnake Run comes in. Rattlesnake Run is not much wider than the bottom of a stepladder. It's only a foot and a half, two feet wide, seldom runs more than a few inches deep, comes out of a swamp right there, and the whole backwater over the swamp is full of this ice. And to go around it, which would have been the wise thing, and I knew that, I stood and looked at it, to go around it would take me an extra half hour. It was getting towards dark. It was already 3 in the afternoon, in, you know, in uh, uh, December 22nd, a short day, day after the shortest day of the year. And I knew it was going to get dark on me, and I had to make time. So I thought, I'm just going right across all that stacked ice. The water is gone. There'll be no problem. Well, I got about halfway across of it, and suddenly... I am down in a cylinder of stacked ice. My left foot is on a rock supporting my weight. I'm in water almost as deep as my hip boots. My right foot touches nothing. There's nothing under it. So I'm standing on one foot, but I'm, I'm confined at the shoulders by this cylinder of ice I'm in. I can see the surface just out of reach above me. 
and between me and the surface are layers of layers of ice and it, there's a slush in between them so the slush is slowly running into the cylinder with me and you know starting to fill my boots and fill the hole up and I'm I'm thinking fast I tried everything a man normally does I screamed as loud as I could you know I I said uh, you know I just I was in a total panic I knew I was caught I knew there was nobody around uh, I, you know, I frantically pulled, got my arms loose as best as I could, pulling them against my chest and pushing them up. Frantically pulled at footholds or handholds in the ice. I got nothing. Uh, you know, it was drizzling rain. Every it was not only ice; it was wet ice, and I just couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't get a hold of the top lip, and I, I considered trying to go down into where my right foot was in the water revoid and swim out into the main current, and it was still rushing. And then I considered, you know, it was 20 feet away. I thought, if I get under there and get hung up on a, first of all, the cold water would probably kill me. And then if I got hung up on a limb or something, I was going to be dead. I couldn't get out to the, I know I couldn't get out to the main flow. And even if I got into the main flow, I'd have to crawl up over the edge of the ice. Nothing was working. My brain was starting to get cold. My, my whole body was getting cold. I knew hypothermia was setting in. And suddenly a peace came over me. It was like, okay, you did everything you can. Give it up. This is where the the story ends. And I took a couple deep breaths. And it was right before Christmas. I was supposed to get together with my brother's family, and he had two little girls, and my parents, and my wife. And you know, I said I got to give it one more go. And just about then, whether you know whether you believe in divine intervention or just dumb luck. In my case, it was probably dumb luck. A big sheet of ice floated in underneath and hit my right foot. And I was able to reach down, get a hold of my hip boot on the top, help my leg, get it up to where I could put pressure on top of that sheet of ice. And it must have been an enormous sheet of ice at the new water level, you know, underneath there. And I was able to get a foothold on it. And that allowed me to start up that cylinder. So after getting my foot on, I, I slowly put pressure on it. I used my forearms against the inside of the cylinder, uh, like uh, mountain climbers call it a chimney climb, I think. I started, you know, reverse pressures, my back one way, my arms the other way, slowly ascending up the, the cylinder, uh, using my foot pressure on that one piece of ice, which did not give. It was meant to be there. Eventually, I got up to where I got a handhold on the top of the ice. It was icy, it was slippery, but I was able to use the palms, get, put pressure on them, lift up. I was in much better shape then. Lift myself up and get my little fat belly up on top of the ice and take a few deep breaths, pull my legs out, drain my hip boots, lay in spread eagle on the ice to distribute my weight. About four or five feet in front of me, leading to the shoreline which I was headed for, was a big tree the root end was towards me and about 30 feet of the tree laid over the top of the ice it had washed up there in the high water I thought nothing would be better than get a hold of that tree so I eventually using one foot against the edge of the cylinder uh, I coiled my body and gave myself a shove slid across those four or five feet and got a hold of that tree and I'll bet if you can find that tree down here in the Pittsburgh area where it's obviously washed by now it'll have my fingerprints still in it my fingernail prints 
I got a hold of that tree and I crawled up the edge of it, got off onto what should have been dry land, and I started for the park office. But I was going to put signs up. I'm okay now. Well, the second, by the time I went for the second sign, the hypothermia had gotten to me where I was falling, I was trembling. Uh, I slung the backpack on and I started for the park office. As I got into the parking lot, the park office is 200 yards across it. I saw there was only one car there and it was pulling out. I started waving my arms and I hollered and hollered. And the secretary, and I forget the name at that time, pulled Don across the parking lot, recognizing me. And I told her what had happened, and we went back over to the, she opened the park office, let me in, called the guys down at the maintenance building. They come and got me, and they had a fire going down there and a 50-gallon drum. And they got me dried out enough to go home. Uh, I warmed up. I managed to drive myself home. And my car was a mile and a half down on the other side, so they took me to the car, uh, which I had expected to be able to do all that walking. And then... Uh, when I got home, I had my wife run a bathtub full of hot water, as hot as I could stand it. And I sat down in it two or three times, and as fast as I'd get in there with my legs, it would cool that water off. And eventually, an hour or so later, I was feeling pretty good. I took her out to dinner, and we celebrated me being here. And that's my best ice adventure, or worst, however you want to look at it. Did that make you a little bit more cautious in the future? Terribly more cautious. I can't tell you how cautious I am. I don't even like ice cubes anymore. Now, you also talk about uh, that this wasn't just a daytime job, but you also had to patrol at night. Uh, what, what's it like to be out in these wilderness areas at night? Uh, night, night? Night's an interesting thing. If you're out there fishing or hunting or just out there playing, night can scare you bad. Uh, when you're out there as an officer, you're the wolf. Uh, you know, you, you suddenly have have the authority. You're, you're controlling the plays. You're the guy that's moving through the woods in the shadows. Uh, you're shadowing the other people rather than them shadowing you. And that makes, for, makes it a whole different game. To this day, I don't like to get up early and go fishing before daylight, but I loved working at nights. Nights never bothered me when I was working. And I had some great escapades during the night. The one that I enjoyed, or I'd say one I'm most remembered for in Venango County, was one night starting in Tynesta, which is actually Forest County, a deputy and I were working. And we saw some fellows with a gig. And it was too early to be gigging frogs, and I'm not even sure if gigging frogs was legal at that time. I imagine it was, but it started in July. The season it was like July 15th. It was previous to that, but it was into the early part of the month. The water was warm, and I'd run the jet boat up and down the river enough to know where the shallows were and where the deep parts were. And these fellows were on the pool at Tynesta as it got dark, and I saw them gig a snapping turtle, which is illegal. Snapping turtles were protected at that time of year in that place. So I thought, okay, I have reason to, to watch them longer. And I figured they'd come back into where their car was parked at Tynesta. Well, two hours later, they dropped out of the Tynesta pool and started down the river. So the whole escapade started at about 10. By 2 or 3 in the morning, I'm down on the Hunter Station golf course. I'm still shadowing them, trying to figure out what they're doing. And I got a bullfrog 
must weigh two pounds sitting in front of me, and I see them, they get it in the spotlight, and they come over, and they say, oh, it's just a frog, and away they go. And I, that really befuddled me. So I figured, well, it's 3 in the morning. i got to make something happen here. So I went, had a deputy with me. We took the car down another half a mile to the boat launch uh, below Hunter Station, parked it. I took my gun belt off, and I just wet waded out into the middle of the river with a flashlight and when the boat and by then the fog had set in and I could see the boat coming down the river because they had a flashlight and I maneuvered to be right in front of them so on a foggy dark night at three in the morning in the middle of the river 25 30 yards from either shoreline a voice spoke to those fellows and said good evening fellas state officer I'd like to check your life preservers and licenses please and when they you know when there's when they settled back into the boat after having jumped straight up uh, all was in order except they had gigged a snapping turtle and the fellow who had done that uh, settled the case on shore right away but later they talked to uh, another guy who knew me and told the story that evening or the next morning and the following Friday night after my shift ended I stopped with my deputy to have a coffee taking him home at the the local restaurant there and this friend of mine come in and he told the whole story to everybody in there because he had been out drinking and he thought the story was great and everybody in the restaurant ought to hear it. So I ended up with a reputation for that one. Another one of your colleagues uh, had the nickname of Old Cozy. Uh, yes. <clears throat> that was Mr. Clarence Shear. Uh, on, on the cover of my book, River Boots, uh, there's a picture of the badge uh, that Clarence Shear gave me. And it came about after uh, after several springs. Mr. Shear retired in 1976. In 1974, I was working undercover, and when I had nothing to do, Mr. Shear's home was a few a few miles from the region office. I was 23, and he was 65, and he would drive by and see me sitting in the region office, waiting for some big escapade to happen so I could get out of there. So he'd come in, and our supervisor was Walt Lazuski, and he said, "Walt." I got to have Steiner, such and such is going on, and I need him because I'm getting old and I can't get up and down over that bank, and I need a young guy with me, and the way I'd go. And then I'd get in the car and say, what are we doing? He said, ah, we're going to go have lunch, and we'll find a bowl of chili. He said, then we'll find something to do, so Walt thinks I really needed you. But he couldn't. He said, I couldn't stand to see you sit in the office. So when I got back to Venango County in 84, he had long retired. He'd been retired for eight years. But I ended up moving within a half a mile of his house on the same road as where Linda and I live now. And Mr. Shear, as I always called him, uh, lived, lived there. And I went down and I said, Mr. Shear, can you, stocking season was on me when I got there. I had like two weeks to learn the district. So I said, Mr. Shear, can you ride with me and show me where the stocking points are and everything I need to know about the stocking in this county? Because I had like 20 trout stockings to do. So he, he agreed to that, and he did that with me. And it got to be a, a thing. I'd go down, pick him up, we'd go stock fish, and people would come over and say, well, where are you going to stock here? And I said, well, I don't know. Ask Mr. Shear. He's the fish warden. You know, and we have a good laugh on it, and uh, we we did that for four or five years. And finally, the last year when he got very sick, I, th I, th I want to say 91, uh, he was riding with me. And after the stalking season was over, I'd gone home the last day, and the phone rang, and he said, I need you to come down here. I found something for you. 
and uh, I walked in and to his house and he had gave me a coffee and he went up and he come out and he, he had the, the old fish warden badge, one of the old original fish warden badges that he had been issued. And I believe that was, a, he had got the first issue of that number. And that's the one you see on the cover of River Boots, my book. Now, one of the terms you use in the book to refer to certain groups of people was a mup here. What's that? Oh, mup here, that's uh, the folks from down here in Pittsburgh or the, the general area. Uh, the joke is that whenever a fish warden or game warden or the general public, somebody that runs a restaurant, uh, you see a face you don't recognize. In Venango County, you either recognize everybody or they're, they're from somewhere else because it's a small county with few people. Everybody knows everybody. So you, you know, your natural instincts say, uh, what are you doing? Uh, you know, where are you from? And those persons generally respond, I'm up here from Pittsburgh. So they've become muppiers. I'm up here from Pittsburgh. Uh, so since you deal with a lot of water, are, are you out patrolling on boats during this time period? Uh, the boat patrols generally run, you know, Memorial Day to Labor Day. Early on, I did a lot of river work uh, with the jet boat. And my, my district, uh, my first district was canoes and kayaks on the Lehigh River. They were just starting to run rubber rafts. Uh, I was there for, the, for when that, that whole thing started, the, the rubber rafts on the Lehigh River. Uh, it was checking safety equipment, which pretty much was life preservers and not much else on the rubber rafts. Uh, you know, we did an awful lot of that. And then when I uh, got over to, and I had a small boat to check fishermen, a 12 or 14 foot boat with a six horsepower on it on the small lakes checking fishermen. Then when I came to Venango County, it started out with just this 14-footer uh, and an outboard, a 20-horsepower outboard, and somebody would drop you off on the river and they'd pick you up downstream. And then they came up with this concept of a jet boat. Uh, it sucks water up, doesn't have a propeller on it, and throws it out the back and makes you go fast through shallow places. And it takes a s certain skill set to be willing to look at an inch and a half, two inches of water and say, I got to go faster. And I developed that skill set. Uh, all summer, I would run the river pretty much from East Brady uh, up to the Forest County line. And then when Joe Capina and the next fellow up, George Jones, got ill, I ended up absorbing their districts with the jet boat. So I was running the 100-mile river for a couple summers before I went into the office as a manager. Now, in one of the stories you tell, you talk about a, a man on the Allegheny River who was spotted with a parrot on his shoulder. Ah. Yes, Parker Peckinpah was the parrot's name, Parker Peckinpah. Uh, it, it started in the headwaters of French Creek. Uh, our officer, Jim Carter, stopped a fellow that was in a canoe with a motor, needed a, it was like a two-horsepower motor, but he was required to have registration. He did not have it. And he gave him a warning and told him he had to get the registration on the canoe before he continued down the river. Uh, the guy said, yeah, I'll do that, and disappeared. And Carter called Don to the office and said, you know, have uh, the different fellows on the river watch for him and make sure he got his registration, as I instructed him, rather than giving him a ticket. Well, he obviously slid through Warren County or and uh, uh, Forest County, and he, sh he showed up on my section of the Allegheny River down by Amlington. Uh, he may have come down French Creek. 
but that's not important anyhow. Uh, he showed up down in Edmonton, and I had Aaron. Her last name's Czech now. I don't remember what her maiden name was, but she was an uh, officer cadet. She stood about five foot four at the most, I'll bet, and you know was 120 pounds soaking wet. And I'm only five seven or five eight at best, and uh, you know I'm at that time I was running by 180 pounds. And this fella has got to be six seven, six nine. He's enormous. He's big, powerful, strong guy, and he got a parrot that rides on his shoulder and. He calls the parrot Parker, Parker Peckinpah. And we stop him and I ask him about the registration. Well, I didn't have time to get it. I didn't know where to get it. It so happens we're in Edmonton and we're only a half a mile from the magistrate's office. So I explained to him that, you know, he's going to get a ticket. And, uh, you know, we're going to, he has no choice. Well, he's not going to settle on a field acknowledgement. He couldn't with the boats. Uh, he wants a citation. He wants a hearing right now. And he's from Texas. I said, well, let's see what we can do. So we parked his boat and our boat. And I, one of the locals that I recognized, I said, keep an eye on that stuff for us. And Aaron and I can't remember the gentleman's name, but Parker, Parker Peckinpah's ride and myself walked up to the magistrate's office. And I believe the magistrate was only in his early 20s or mid-20s and only been in office half a year. And in we walk, you know, and he's, the magistrate stands there and looks at the three of us, and he looks at me, and he said, and looked at Aaron, and he said, who's in charge here? We were the two in uniform. And I said, well, I guess I am. And uh, he said, can I talk with you in the back room? And I said, certainly. So I went back, and he said, what's going on? And I explained the situation to him. He said, what would the state like to accomplish here? Do we have to give this man a ticket? I said, the state would like to see a registration on that canoe before it leaves Edmonton. He said, how can we make that work? And I said, well, uh, you ought to be able to do that. In those days, we had the advanced electronics of a fax machine. I said, via fax machine with the courthouse. And we all agreed on that out at the counter, and that, that is how Parker Peckinpah got to finish his ride down the Allegheny River. Now, I'm sure in, in your line of work, you were out in the wilderness, you encountered a lot of different types of wild animals. You probably did not expect to encounter an attack rabbit. Ah, yes. I, I wasn't necessarily on my own. I had good help with the attack rabbit. Uh, I was traveling that particular day. Again, I went up to Bob Nulse. I said, what's on the agenda today? He said, well, I'm going to go out and meet Teddy Veslowski, who was a, a great big six-foot-four powerful man that was a game protector in northern, uh, in the Wilkes-Barre area. Bob had the uh, Hazleton-Cunningham area, and uh, I had both areas. So I said, well, I'm not that busy. Let me go along. i got to see what's going on. He said, we have a bear that broke into a lady's rabbit pen. I said, well, I really, i, I got to see how this shakes out. This sounds like fun. So we go up, and we're, they knock on the door. I'm standing back a little bit. And this lady comes to the door and just peeks her face out. And she said, a bear broke into my rabbit pen and my rabbit got loose. And uh, Ted said, it was Ted's district. He said, yeah, and so what? <laughs> you know, can we capture the rabbit? What are we supposed to do here? And she said, well, it's a fierce rabbit. It bit my neighbor. And she said, you guys better be, you know, watching, watch out for yourself because this rabbit's out there loose and it'll attack you. 
and I'm standing back about six or eight feet, and I just can't keep a straight face anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning from Monty Python this attack rabbit coming from the, the Holy Grail movie, and the three of us standing there armed and this rabbit beating up on us, and I just started to giggle. And she said, it's not funny, it's not funny. And it, I'm sure to her it wasn't, but I had lost control, and then the two of them lost control, and we all apologized, and we got a rabbit rounded up, and you know, they, I think they paid her some bear damage, or out of the bear damage fund for the repair of the pen or something. But it, it just struck me as terribly funny that uh, three armed conservation officers are standing there facing down an attack rabbit. Well, we've been talking about the book River Boots, A Fish Warden's Tales of Pennsylvania Fish and Game Law Enforcement. Robert Lynn Steiner, thank you for talking with me. Thank you for the opportunity. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.